This is week three in our five-week credibility gap series. And during this series, we will be taking an honest look at some of the reasons that so many people have been turning away from the church, or worse, some have been become very antagonistic towards Christians in general. And our hope is that by taking this honest look together, we will become a community that helps narrow the credibility gap, and we will be a community that leads more people to Jesus. That's our prayer. And I want to begin by saying that Barry did a great job in the first two sermons of this series. If you haven't heard them, uh, please listen to them. They are not what I would call easy listening sermons, they're both, but they're both powerful. And they say that if we ever want to narrow the gap that keeps people from considering Jesus these days, then we will have to be vigilant about making certain that first, our own lives, and then secondly, grace as a community, grace church as a community, that we and the community are wholly devoted to Christ. That's where we have to begin. And I know it isn't a heartwarming message to be challenged to look honestly into our own souls and to see if there's any hypocrisy or misplaced allegiances that could lead others to questioning the credibility of our faith. Those are the two things that Barry talked about in the first two weeks, but I know that addressing the, that to address this credibility gap, we have to start there. I do want to remind us, though, that our mission, first and foremost, is to make disciples of Jesus. And so we want to be a community that does everything it can to narrow the gap that might hinder someone from finding faith in Jesus. And so that's why for these five weeks, we are going to be talking about these things openly and honestly. Now, today, I was asked to talk about something that may seem at first to be, how shall I say it, um, rather odd or possibly esoteric. I have been asked to talk about how certain theological positions have the potential to widen the credibility gap, how some theological positions have become harmful to our mission of leading people to Jesus. Now, I, I know that hearing me say we're going to be talking about theological positions may glaze some eyes over. I get it, I can just, harmful theologies, Tim? It's 11.30 on a Sunday morning, you wanna talk about this really? Um, I understand, but I ask you to stick with me. I promise I will do my best not to make this an esoteric time, okay? Um, but before we dive into the subject of harmful theologies, I wanna quickly read a passage of scripture that I believe will help us as we think about engaging with those who are disaffected and dismissive of our faith. And that passage is James chapter one, verses two to five. And I'd like everybody to turn to this, find some uh, on your phones or some way to have your uh, Bible before you. And if you're online, we're glad you're with us. And I want you to get a Bible and look up these 
uh, verses. It's James 1, verses 2 to 5. And here's what we read there. We read this. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Now, I'm going to stop right there and say that troubles, the word troubles, is a nice definition, I suppose, or translation. It's too nice of a translation of the Greek word here. The word is pyrosmos, pyrosmos. And pyrosmos isn't just any old trouble. A pyrosmos means to question someone's integrity. It means to question their virtue. And I've got to say that when people start talking to me about why they've turned their back on the church or why they think that Christians are dangerous, it's almost impossible for me to not take their criticism personally, like they are coming after my what? My integrity because I say I'm a follower of Jesus. But James had something unexpected to say about these kinds of troubles, something that explains why he says that troubles are an opportunity for joy. He says, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. Now, endurance comes from the Greek word Hupomone, and hupomone means to be unmoved from your purpose. It means to be steadfast. It actually means to stay behind when other people run away. And this kind of endurance can really help when people are questioning the credibility of your faith. It keeps us in the room. It gives us a chance after showing these people that we are willing to have our integrity put to the test, that we're still there and we're still ready to what? Lead them to Jesus and that should give us joy according to James. Then verse 5 says, if you need wisdom, our generous God, or ask our generous God and He will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. And so, as we start to talk about theologies that may lead people to question the credibility of our faith, I think we need wisdom from God. So I'm going to ask for that before I say anything else. I'd like to pray, and then we're going to dive into this. So let me pray for us, and then we'll move on. Father, I am asking you for wisdom pray that everything that I say will be worthy of you and speak truthfully of you, and that you will teach us in this time about your heart and your desire for us to lead others to your Son. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now one reason that I thought it was important that we read this passage from James right here as we get started, it was that it shows me by what James is talking about in this book. Um, that narrowing the credibility gap is nothing new for followers of Jesus. Almost everything that James talks about through the whole of his letter has something to do with showing a doubting world that Jesus is actually worth following. And the issues in James' day 
are exactly the same issues that we have today. Christians living for power and wealth widened the, the credibility gap then, and it still does. Saying one thing and then doing another widened the credibility gap in James's day, and it still widens the credibility gap. Living with one foot in the world and the other foot claiming to be following Jesus widened the credibility gap in James's day, and it still widens the credibility gap. But there was one thing that James did not talk about at all in his letter, if you read it, you'll find that he never talks about one thing that seemed to have not yet become an issue in the first century church. And you know, James's book is probably the earliest of the New Testament books. And at that time, harmful theological positions were not driving people away from considering Jesus. Now, they did have the problem that they were talking about a man who had died, had been raised from the dead. That seemed a little incredulous to some people, but that theological ideas surrounding Christianity were not yet problems. But today, there are certain theological positions that have taken root in the modern world, and when I say modern, I, I mean the last 200 years of evangelicalism, and sadly, these theological positions have helped widen the credibility gap. And we believe that we need to honestly examine these theological positions so we can be sure that what we say about God is going to be useful to leading people to Jesus. I am only going to talk about two issues. Um, there are many that we could talk about, but I think that two will be enough today to get us thinking about this important subject. And here's the first harmful theological position. It is what I can only think to call an inappropriate view of the Bible. And I want to be clear as clear as I can about this because I don't want anybody to ever think that we don't have a high view of the Bible. It's God's Word and we do have a high view of the Bible. But there is a theological position that is resident in the evangelical world that says it is not important that the Bible is a collection of different books, each with its own context and genre and message. This theological position holds that the Bible is essentially one big mystical thing. That's about the best way that I can describe it. And that every sentence or verse or small part of a verse, any way you want to break it up, those little things can stand alone on their own and have a very own special meaning outside of anything related to what the author intended or the world that it comes out of. And this theological position holds that you can pull a verse out here, 
And you can break up verses here, and you can take a verse from this part of the Bible, and you can stick it end to end with this verse over here, and you can make it say, well, just about anything you want to say, and that somehow, mystically, God is giving us new messages from that which people break up. And when you're done, the Bible becomes a pretty much of a you-can-say-just-about-anything book. And people do say just about anything from just about anywhere all the time, as if it is biblical truth. And they are guided by nothing else than what they have decided the words on the page mean right now. Now, Here's an example. Um, In the third book of John, in verse 2, we find this phrase in the middle of a much longer sentence. It says, Beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper. All ancient letters began, this is notice it's verse 2, they all began with the statement of who's writing the letter, to whom, and then the writer says something positive about the people that they're writing to just to let them know they like them. Now, beloved, I wish above all things you may prosper. The word, it's euodeo, and it's a word that's translated prosper. It does not mean to become wealthy. It never means that in the Bible. The word always means something like, I hope you have safe journeys. I hope your travels are safe. That's the kind of word that it is. But some people believe that it's perfectly okay to pull that little bit out of that verse, take it out of its context as an introduction to a letter, add the English meaning of the word prosper, and then say that it is God's desire that all of his followers are wealthy. Or worse, that wealth is a sign of God's favor. Now, you can see why a teaching like that, when it's separated from any context or authorial intent, would set set off all kinds of credibility warning signals, especially when there are so many other places in the Bible that say exactly the opposite thing. I'm just gonna say that one thing that guides our teaching throughout all of the ministries of grace, and it is my job to make sure that this is true, it's this, when we say God said this, or God promises that, or God does this, or this is important to God, we work really hard to be certain that we are saying something that is absolutely true about God. I know that I don't like it when I find out that people are saying things about me that aren't true. And my bet is that God does not like it either. And living by a theology that says the Bible is just one big book that can be read in any way that a person just happens to want to read it, and it can say anything that a person might come along and think that they've discovered is a harmful theological position. 
Something that really saddens me is that even though Christians call the Bible God's Word, and they mean it, and they take it very seriously, most Christians have no idea about how the Bible came to be, or why it is authoritative, or even how it should be read. I'm going to make an authoritative statement, a Grace Church statement. The Bible at its core is God's self-revelation. God has chosen in this time and in this place to primarily reveal Himself to us through the experiences that people had with Him, experiences that so inspired them and moved them that they couldn't help themselves but to write it down and God working through His Holy Spirit worked to make sure that what they wrote down about Him was accurate and this is the most important part, God's Spirit made certain that His, these writings were preserved for all time, for all people and this is what the Bible is. And a big step towards closing the credibility gap related to the Bible is simply knowing enough about the Bible to correct misstatements and misjudgments and be as truthful as we can about what the Bible is and what it actually says. I know this involves work. Knowing how the Bible came to be and knowing how we should read it isn't something that gets people all excited. But I'm gonna say something. In our cultural reality now, this stuff, knowing this stuff, will be helpful in leading others to see that the Bible is amazingly credible. It is amazingly credible. And there's something else related to a faulty way or an inappropriate way of approaching the Bible that is ignoring whole parts of Scripture through what is called dispensational theology. Now, dispensational theology is very complex. It's very complex. But at its core, it holds that the Bible timeline from Genesis onward, it can be divided into spaces or what are called dispensations where God works one way in this space and then he works another way in this space, and then he works another way in this time space, and in each one, he seems to have a different character. And what many dispensationalists believe is that we can just ignore whole parts of the Bible because they were intended for a time that is long gone now and have nothing to do with the dispensation that we live in. Now stick with me here, this is personal. My grandfather, who I loved to death and love him, love him, love him, he was a wonderful man, but he was a hyper dispensationalist, hyper. And he was so convinced that the Bible timeline was divided up into completely autonomous sections that he only would read the parts of the Bible that were written to churches because he believed we were in the church age. My grandfather did not even believe that what Jesus had to say was important to, for us to know 
because Jesus lived in a dispensation that ended when the church began at Pentecost. Now, I know that's extreme, but this way of looking at the Bible is harmful, especially when people start asking questions about, say, for instance, why does the God of the Old Testament seem so vengeful and hateful and violent and yet so different in the New Testament? Well, let's just say that it doesn't help to say, as my grandfather used to say, well, God used to be that way, but he's changed. Or worse, he would add, God has changed his mode of operation, but let me tell you, he still reserves the right to be vengeful if he wants to go after somebody that's crossed him. Now, I'm going to read a little bit of Isaiah to you. Just listen to this. Scream in terror for the day of the Lord has arrived, the time for the Almighty to destroy. The day of the Lord is coming, the terrible day of his fury and fierce anger. The land will be made desolate and all the sinners destroyed with it. The heavens will be black above them and the stars will give no light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will provide no light. I, the Lord, will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their sin. I will shake the heavens and the earth and will move from its pl- and the earth will move from its place when the Lord of heaven's armies displays his wrath in the day of his fierce anger. Uh, this is pretty rough stuff. It's pretty rough. And it's harmful to shrug it off and, and say, well, God isn't like that anymore. Uh, but he can be if you don't get into line. And people are skeptical to begin with. They're just not going to buy this seemingly unpredictable God. Now, I'm not here to debate the notion of dispensationalism, but I'll say this. Here at Grace, we believe that the whole of the Bible, every bit of it, is the story of God's love for mankind. And so when we get to passages like this one in Isaiah, rather than casually appeal to some theological position, that clearly won't make any of our skeptical friends feel good about it. Our task is to do the hard work of putting a passage like that into its actual historical context and to identify, and this is the most important part, identify the cruel injustices that God was actually addressing in those angry words. We are confident that you'll find that God's intent, especially in places where his language seems harsh, is always to bring an end to some identifiable extreme injustice, all the while trying to draw people back into a loving relationship with him. Here's the truth. Most people don't know much, if anything, about the Bible. And they know less about the world of the Bible. Most of what people know about the Bible comes from someone they heard that sounded like they knew what they were talking about. Or worse, something they just happened to Google and look up online. Or from people who were trying to press them into making a decision that they really didn't want to make, and they caught something that person said about the Bible, and it stuck with them, and none of this is helpful. And grace people, we need to be helpful. We need to be helpful. 
When people ask about the Old Testament's vengeful God, and they will ask because people always do, it's best to ask this. Just say, what what passage are you talking about? Usually they're not talking about a passage, they're just talking about something broadly. But if they actually give you a passage and you don't know the specifics, you can say, I don't know the specifics, but I'll find out what's going on in that passage. Because believe me, you can find out what's going on in that passage. This is all, this is not like secret knowledge. Again, the bottom line is staying in the room. Just staying in the conversation will help narrow the credibility gap. Does God get angry? You bet. But if you look at why God is angry, my bet is that you'd probably been angry too. And does God ever step into history to bring judgment? Yes, he has. But if we give people the facts, they'll usually come to see that what we find, that what is happening in the Bible is a good God doing exactly what we would expect a good God to do. That's what's going on in the passage that I read to you from Isaiah. Again, we believe that the Bible is one long story of God's love for mankind, and I promise that we will do our best to teach every part of the Bible honestly and openly because we believe that the Bible actually tells us about God, that something about God that is life-giving to everyone and can be to people who need to be helped across a credibility gap. Now, I've only finished one theological issue, um, so I have one more. Um, What I wanna talk about may ruffle some feathers. I know this because I talked about this in one other sermon. I talked about it in detail in a sermon that I gave in August of 2018, and some feathers were ruffled. And it has to do with theologies related to end times. There are four primary views on the prophecy related to end times, and only one of the four views, a view that is called the futurist position, only one of the four primary views holds that there is still prophecy that will be fulfilled in the future. This is the position that holds there's a rapture coming, followed by a seven-year tribulation, and a thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth, and a battle in a place called Armageddon. And believe it or not, it is the minority view of end times things in the broad world of Christianity. This is a fact. And yet this view has dominated the evangelical fundamentalist world in North America for close to 200 years. And for most of us, it's the only thing we've ever heard. Now I'm not saying that this position is necessarily wrong. But what I can say is that this theological position, which was only created in the 1830s, 
It has a number of unexpected and unintended consequences that have widened the credibility gap, and here are some of those things that have widened the credibility gap for people. This position leads to what is called escapist theology, that we get out, and all those who disagree with us are left behind to endure terrible times of horror. That we get out. And it gives us a pass, since we're getting out, on worrying about the brokenness in the world now because all of our focus is about getting lifted out and not having to fix the mess. And people sense that when we talk about it. And it also leads to Christians having no concern about the health of our planet because part of the futurist theology is that this world will be burned up destroyed by fire and then recreated. And so the theological position has led to the idea that we can just take advantage of this planet for whatever purposes we have for ourselves because in the end, it's just gonna burn up anyway. And this theological position, it perpetuates a very deep us versus them way of thinking about the world that has spilled over in all sorts of ways, both into social realms, but primarily into political realms. And for most people, when we start talking about these things and why we act the way we do related to them, it is unimaginable to them. Now, Bottom line in all of this, Jesus said he was coming back. And I believe with all my heart he will. But when and how, Jesus didn't say. In fact, what he did say was that even he did not know the time of his return. Please hear me on this. The Jewish scholars in the centuries leading up to Jesus' first coming had studied the scripture intently related to the coming of the Messiah. And they had figured out when and in what way he would come. And they were certain that they knew what he would do and what was gonna happen when he came and they had everything figured out to a T and they taught it all the time and everybody was all worked up in the first century about the coming of the Messiah and they got everything wrong but one thing and that's that he was gonna be born in Bethlehem. And I think it's absolutely possible that we are living in a similar time. Now let me be clear, all the futurist ideas about the end times could be right, but even if they are, we won't know until they happen and there's nothing that we can do to speed them up or slow them down. Plus, experience shows that a strong emphasis on this sort of end times theology in a church takes that church's focus off the brokenness around them and it puts their attention on waiting to hear a trumpet blow. And it's said that it makes people too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. This is why we don't measure on end times things here at Grace. The world is full of too much brokenness and there are too many people who need to meet Jesus for us to major on this sort of theology. We will speak longingly about the return of Jesus. 
But as to when and how and all that other stuff, we're just going to leave that to God to reveal to us in his own time, okay? The most popular Christian song of my youth was a song by Larry Norman called I Wish We'd All Been Ready. I have asked if anybody knew this song. I've so far, okay, I see those hands. We've now gotten to about 12 people. Um, I was gonna say maybe you've heard it, but apparently you haven't. Um, Well, this song had a line in the chorus. The chorus went, the sun has come and you've been left behind. I wish we'd all been ready. That's where the Left Behind series got its name from Larry Norman's song. And I've been thinking about this song a lot and its title, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. And it still rings true to me today, but in a very different way. My prayer is that we, the people of Grace Church, will be ready. But not that we we will be ready to be lifted out of this world like the song talks about, but ready in these days to live out what James said in that bit of his letter that I read earlier. My hope is that we'll be ready to honestly deal with whether or not our own credibility will stand up to the scrutiny of deep examination. That our lives will be such that we can say, come on, check it out. I'm confident that my life is credible next to my faith that I claim that I hold. And that we'll be ready to stay in the room and endure those kinds of troubles that come when you engage people that are not only unsure about Jesus, but they think what you believe might actually be dangerous. And that we'll be ready to only allow God's wisdom to direct our thinking, that only God's wisdom will create our theology as to what we say is true about God. I want us to be ready in these ways because these are the kinds of things that will actually close the credibility gap. John 3.17 says that God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. And the essence of our mission is to tell the world this truth. And my prayer is that we, that Grace Church, that we will be a community that is ready to do all that we can to make certain that everyone that hears this message from us about Jesus will not only find it credible, but they will joyfully join us as we follow Jesus. That is my prayer for us.